0: Welcome back to season two, I've always wanted to say that, of The Perfect Pitch. I've had a great summer, plotting and planning new things for Wildcat and Noted, which are all due to come together and be announced soon, but it's also time to get back to interviewing lots of fun and interesting people in the classical music and creative industries. First up, I felt it would be great to start with a cellist and entrepreneur called Gabby Swallow. She uh, speaks to me really honestly and candidly about her career, about motherhood, about modern day struggles of uh, being a freelance musician, the setbacks of that, but also the real highs. She is a really positive and wonderful character to speak to, and I think you'll really enjoy it. So feel free to rate and review, and let's get stuck in. Mm with Gabby Swallow and Gabby's a cellist but as part of my Perfect Pitch podcast I always like to let you introduce yourself. So do you have like a party pitch that you give people when they ask you what you do?
1: Um So yeah I'm Gabby and I've basically made a career out of saying yes to anyone. <laughs> <laughs>
0: I think. <laughs> So, um, to start me off or start us off, how did you start in playing cello, or what was like, your early memories on being involved in music or introduced to music?
1: So, my parents were actually dentists, um, but very musical dentists. My mother was an amateur harpsichord player, and my father was a music lover. And they were very into Baroque music. I was born in 1980, and there was a huge Baroque movement. And they were working in Holland at dental school there. So basically the people that would visit me as a baby were all Baroque musicians from Amsterdam. And we moved to Belfast because my father ran the dental school there and again met more musicians. And um, and then in 1984, we moved to Spalding in Lincolnshire, which is not the most musical county at all. Oh. But I had um, very early piano lessons and then very good recorder teacher at school. So I became kind of like a performing monkey recorder player. And my mother would play harpsichord and we'd go and do recitals everywhere and I could circle and breathe and do lots of fancy things. And as we know, the recorder, certainly in 1987, had quite limited repertoire. I think Michaela Petrie was kind of my heroine and she'd obviously commissioned. But at that point, I was just playing baroque music with my mum. And then one of my my family's old Dutch colleagues and friends who also was a theobo player said, well, actually, a lot of recorder player kids in Holland are now learning string instruments for this very problem. So my parents said, well, which one would you like to play? And I remember distinctly thinking now all I want is the big one. So I said to them... <laughs>
0: Why didn't you uh, end up with a double bass? <laughs> well, they lied to
1: me because the car wasn't big enough. <laughs> so I should be a double bass player, but they had this kind of slightly sporty car and and that we couldn't get the double bass in. So they said, well, cello it is. And of course, it was part of the whole Jacqueline Dupre yeah. baby boom, you know, because she died sadly in 1987, I think. So that would have been the year I started. Oh, wow. And so I then, uh, you know, had a wonderful teacher called Glenis Malkin and we, she was very good because actually she got me writing music at a very young age. And the recorder was still incredibly important. That was my first study. Yeah. And I knew at that point at primary school, I was feeling different. That's oh, the really? best way to describe uh, it. I felt yeah. like an outsider. I mean, because of Lincolnshire, there was lots of rich farmer children. Mm-hmm. So I probably would have felt different anyway, because my parents were sort of their dentists. Um, but I did feel different and the music was the difference. And I remember with the recorder especially, because it was such an instant, instant instrument, I would go to bed with the recorder book and not want to stop yeah. on the next page. Oh. So th- I think that was where people started noticing there was something different about me. So I don't know why Cheatham School of Music came up, but it did. And in 1990, um, we went to audition as a recorder player and had the cello in the boot of the car as a reserve. And the director of music at the time said... Um, look, you are a truly exceptional recorder player, but you will literally run out of repertoire in about two years. Is there anything else you can do? And I sort of said, well, I've kind of got a cello in the boot of the car. I've sort of just done a couple of years sort of starting that, but not much. And I played just a simple piece and he said, "Right, you're going to be a cellist. And I literally haven't played the recorder since. Oh, wow. So it's so strange (laughs) for me to have such a big uh, history with one instrument, which I don't touch anymore, but that's how I started out. And then cello it was really. But again, I felt kind of like an outsider at Cheetham's because everyone was much more advanced Mm. on their first study than I was. So I learned really when I started and I remember having, I was totally clueless. I remember the first string orchestra rehearsal. I was, you know, uh, at the back of the cellos and I'd never played in an orchestra before. And I thought I was the bottom of the whole orchestra. (laughs) I thought that it was literally like the cello was the, the bottom of the pile and it wasn't just the bottom of the cellos, I was the bottom of the whole of the junior school yeah. and it was terrible and I had just didn't have a clue because my parents, bless them, they, so many kids at Cheatham's had specialist music, mm. you know, from the beginning and parents were professional musicians and I simply didn't. Mm. So I learned everything mm. really at that school mm. on, you know, and and had a good time, you know, lots of pros and cons, obviously, about being sent away. I probably wouldn't do it to my oh, children. Wow. I was nine. Oh, wow. That so I saw hard. my parents one night a month from wow. nine to 18. Mm. And then, of course, at summer holidays, it wasn't even like I was at home much because I would go and do music courses abroad. And it's a big price to pay. Mm. And I, I think probably till I had children myself, I thought it was okay. And then I realized probably when I had children again that, there was so much of me that wasn't developed Mm. by going to that place Mm. that I just didn't, I mean, I had horrific general knowledge. You had to choose between geography and history at 11. So I kind of knew what King was there, but I hadn't got a clue where, you know, you know, I didn't understand the map of Europe. I mean, I just didn't have a clue. And then of course, when you become a professional musician, you realize that you do need other stuff to survive. So you need to have a business sense and, and again, you know, I've learned all of this really on the job.
0: Did they not teach you any business elements of the business uh, ch- cheat ins?
1: Not so much. I think no. the Royal College. I was lucky that the Woodhouse Centre started mm. Mm. when I. I think it was probably a year before I started. It, it existed. Okay. So we started getting some advice, but again, being a kid that had just been at music school for nine years, I didn't have the capacity to understand what they were teaching. Mm. Most people, of course, you know, had gone to youth orchestra and had a, or the junior department and had normal, um, week at school. Mm. And my, my concept of normal was totally different from other people in every sense mm. in forming relationships and all the things that it takes you to be a well-rounded human being. So when someone would come in and talk to us about tax, I didn't understand about money. I didn't know how to write a check. I didn't know how to cook. I didn't know how to do anything so I think it was slightly lost so you were me.
0: well prepared for life <laughs> yeah totally I know exactly
1: I was pretty pretty much a walking disaster I'd say till I was about 31 oh, God! <laughs> <laughs> and I'm open about it it's fine
0: <laughs> but I think what I wonder if that has made you also more of a creative musician because I like about you and I always thought you're someone who fits into everything somewhat if an orchestra needs you or if you want to do a solo project, be it repertoire, be it set up, be it the flexibility that it requires. You kind of somehow, for me, are the modern musician on how, hmm. how to take on lots of different disciplines and be open-minded towards composition and all of it. And I don't think that actually gets taught necessarily in, in, in the college setting.
1: No, I mean, I, everything, part of my career, I've learned by necessity. And I think that's quite a different thing because, as well, I've had to, I've come from such a traditional music education in the sense that it's meant to be. And I, I forget this, you know, it was like five kids from Europe or something that got a place at Cheetham's in 1990. I mean, it was a very privileged way to to learn music, but... It was also very traditional in the sense that they wanted to churn out either an orchestral musician or a soloist, and mm. there was nothing in between. And I knew from such an early age that, for me, it was always presenting something new was the thing that got me going. Mm. And stru- struggling in institutions where they didn't have the uh, the concept of that that was okay always made me have to find out mm. stuff for myself mm. and create new projects Um at nine, I think at 19, I made my debut at Ronnie Scott's. Oh, wow. And that was because my very traditional cello teacher, who absolutely was well meaning, just said, Well, if you want to go into becoming a professional cellist, we're going to have to spend a year really sorting out your technique. Mm. Now, to say that to a kid who's only ever done concerts for nine years and played the cello that you're not going to perform mm. was not the best move for someone like me. So it, it was early internet days, I ha- hate to admit. And things were kind of um, these, I've forgotten what they're called now. It was like pink pages that you would buy. And it was adverts. Oh, I don't
0: know. You no,
1: know, it was know. not Gumtree. It was like the, the first, kind of Lute. It was called Lute, Lute Magazine. I
0: don't
1: know Lute. Oh, gosh, you're younger than me, I think. <laughs> I've just been rumbled. But it, it was like 1999 <laughs> and I applied for an advert in Lute, which was looking for a, a, a cellist. Oh, really? And oh, for a oh, join an indie band. And so I joined, you know, an indie band because I just wanted to play. Mm. And I wasn't really allowed to at the Royal College of Music, bizarrely. So I would then spend every week in a little flat in Findry Park working on slightly shady indie music. <sighs> but the good thing was, is that they couldn't read music. Mm. And I, um, learned to really, I mean, I'd studied composition. I was doing joint principal composition. So it kind of built up my composition chops, just writing and dictating. Mm. But also learning to how to work with insecure singer-songwriters who felt that they were less because they couldn't. So I would empower them. Mm. So I learned that kind of skill. And then recording sessions and stuff that they weren't teaching at the college. And so I felt that it didn't really matter what I was doing. First of all, my rule probably now would be if the music's good. And that for me is luxury. Mm. But before it was like, what can I learn from this opportunity? Mm. You know, can I learn from, you know, this person who I'm sitting next to or can I learn from the experience of, uh, of notating or dealing with a complicated person? Mm. You know, I learned probably more from that because a lot of the artists I end up working with are very complicated individuals. Mm. And I think people see me, as not just as a cellist, but as a therapist, which is part of the deal, because I've learned over the years that a lot of these artists have incredibly large egos mm. and are narcissistic, and that's no problem. But you leave your own ego and narcissistic quality, which we all have to have just to get on stage, mm. firmly at home. Because, you know, bless her, I worked with Ariana Grande last week or something, she doesn't want to know that my kid got up three times you know, during the night. She doesn't care. you know. So I wouldn't be working with those kind of people if I'm going to bring in my own problems. Mm, mm. So you, I learnt all of that stuff really young.
0: Mm. And I guess from my perspective, what I also thought was really interesting is you live in London, which is mm. probably arguably one of the hardest places as a freelance musician to live, or as a musician in general, if you're not a top yeah. soloist. uh kind of so how hard or easy do you find it to get by and find the right avenues to make money you have two children as you Mm. mentioned kind of the the element of having kids is in the press quite a lot with musicians at the moment and kind of swap and all the opera elements but how hard or easy have you found it to be a single mum or working mum in that sense and also how do you find the work how do you make it work to a large degree
1: Well, uh, it's it's a long, complicated story. I mean, I became a single parent seven years ago. Um, My ex-husband is a very successful composer and he obviously earns more than me and his financial contribution pays for the basics. Mm. So I'm very lucky that my rent is covered, Mm. but that's not going to be forever, Mm. quite rightly. You know, I have to obviously when the children need full time education there'll be another arrangement but for now what i try and do is i want to take full financial control over my life that's my aim you know i mm. I, I i don't like anyone helping and that just goes for every aspect of my life mm. i like to to really be in control and i want to work and i'm very lucky that i've owned that decision to think, well, being a mother makes me a better musician and being a musician makes me a better mother. Mm. That's who I am. The first sign, and I think you'll feel that as well as a working mother, is that guilt plays a massive factor. Guilt that you're not enough in our jobs or guilt that you're not enough as a mother. So once you've realised that not just you personally feel that, but all your other friends feel that, that's a massive relief. And things like bonding Facebook groups and... Actually speaking openly about the struggles mm. to colleagues, that, that's definitely been changing. And mm. we are being more honest. There's the feeling of being a super mum, thank God God is changing and we're being much more open about our flaws.
0: I always thought you, you know. as a super mum. Well, <laughs> 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 I'm gonna take that
1: cat. But the reality is is that of course I, I you know, especially when I have to tour, and touring is mm, very you tour fair and, a very difficult thing. Yeah, so I've uh, supported Brian Ferry. For the last two years and nearly actually went out on the road with him for six months this year. But there was a family situation in Brian's production that meant that he didn't feel confident about having a new musician join up Mm. just at that point. And that was a very difficult start to the year Mm. because my regular artist um, changed direction with her touring. And then I was literally, I'm going to be really open about this story because I think we have to be as musicians. That I'd given my passport details, I'd given the dimensions of the cello and it was all going to happen. I'd sort of got my living um, nanny sorted and my ex-husband was aware of my plans. And basically I got the call saying, we're really sorry, but it's not going to happen. And of course, as a musician, you can't write back going, Oh my God, I've got no money and I, what am I going to do? You can't do that. You have to write back saying, no problems. Cause of course, you know, I still want them to work with you in the
2: future. Absolutely.
1: And I've been working on Brian's album and I think the relationship will continue. It just wasn't the right time. So I took from that experience at the beginning of the year of really being solidly away to thinking, okay, now is the time to build up my freelance work in London. And I still feel 10 years later than everyone else because I had children in my 20s. And so I feel like I've come back into things late and there's lots of avenues that I hadn't explored. And I think when people see you as a touring musician, they don't think you'll be interested in work in London because you are generally always away. Mm -hmm. So I picked up the phone I spoke to section principals, colleagues and said, look, this has just happened Please keep me in mind. Mm. And it's a tricky phone call to make, especially when you're, you know, my age and, you know, people see you as established. And you've got to be honest and say this has just happened. It's been bad luck, but it has. And amazingly, people were so generous and so delighted that I was around not just to kind of see socially, but to actually offer the work too mm. and I was just very fortunate so I I started working on Hamilton as a dep which has just been an amazing experience and it's my first big West End show I've worked on and now doors are opening in that world and then my own solo projects I did a, a solo recital at Handel, Handel Hendricks house and I had this amazing electric cello built for me because of the pop world mm. which is now I'm playing music I really care about on and I've been working a lot, and I must talk about it more, but English National Opera, mm. I've done maybe six or seven operas with them this season, so for this year. And I've learned so much from sitting in the middle of, I'd say, one of the nicest cello sections mm. I've ever worked with. I
0: always hear really good things about oh, the, they're the, the best. general orchestra. Just you know, so like
1: friendly. The yeah. And and to go from playing for, opening for Brian Ferry, where you're playing 6,000, 7,000 people, and you're then photographed and your image is everywhere the next day to sitting in a pit it's just been, for me, a total joy. Mm. Some people would think of it maybe as less of a thing, but I just think of it as just equal, if not more. Mm. So I've always learned, and I've learned from that tough start of the year that this could happen again. You never know, especially in pop, where the artist is so unpredictable that you could be doing a session at their house that are like, oh my God, we're going to go on the road, we're going to do this and this and this. You never know until you're at the gig Mm. what is going to happen because contracts don't exist. There's no retainers. You just have to trust that they'll feel the same in a few weeks when they actually book you. And so I think I've learned from that experience. I thought, right, this may happen again, and now I'll be better prepared Mm. for when it does
0: where do you think you'd like your career to go? Because obviously, as a musician, you can go on until you're in your 90s, pretty much. <laughs>
1: Absolutely. I know. Well, I think, for, gosh, physically to, to last till I'm 90, that you would not be able Probably to play. <laughs> it's hard because I have a, you know, I'm, again, I'm open about it. I have a rotator cuff injury, which a lot of cellists get in their 60s. Mm-hmm. And I have it in my 30s because I was especially musical trained and, Again, the information about how to look after your body wasn't there. Mm. We had maybe 20 minutes of Alexander technique a week. Oh, wow. And now, of course, an orthopedic surgeon, when I was working in LA, I was very lucky that a friend knows sports doctors and I went to see them and they, I had a big MRI and they said, well, this is classic mm. cellist injury. Um, you will probably have to have surgery or it should be six weeks off, but at the moment, there's stuff you can do about it. Mm. So I do Pilates and weight training and everything I can to take care of myself so I can have a long career. Mm -hmm. That's really important. But in terms of musically, I'm so happy about what I'm doing. You know, I think touring will get easier when the children grow up.
0: Mm. How old are they now? They're
1: now seven and nearly 10. Oh, wow. And I'm just about to go on Sweden for a two-and-a-half-week tour, which actually has been my only big tour this year. Mm. I was with Nigel Kennedy and Gdansk, but four days was nothing, mm. you know, compared to kind of three-and-a-half weeks every few weeks in mm. America, mm. where FaceTime, okay, it does help, but... You don't get that tactile feeling of needing to hold your children, yeah. which I really missed. So it's, it's a tough one. Mm. And it's bittersweet with, with technology and, and all of that. So I think more touring, but preferably, you know, less intense now. i re- very, very early talks about commissioning a new cello concerto, which should be really exciting. Mm. And a new female led um orchestra, which we co started founding called Harmonia consort that's a really important group because I think women it, things are getting better, mm. but I think it's important to keep the discussion going mm. and to appreciate how far we've come mm. and actually our success in the music industry so far rather than focusing on the negatives, mm. but thinking this is this is where we are and this is where we need to go. And I think having worked with opera and actually for this year and seeing their issues in um, opera planning, um, which has benefited me in the sense that I work in an opera orchestra. So, you know, yes, starting orchestral rehearsals late so you can do drop-off is equally as important to me. Mm. So I think I've noticed a lot with my colleagues that there's a massive start of women who start chamber music groups in their 20s when they have children, they are dropping. Mm-hmm. And that's the area I'm interested in, is keeping people going. Mm-hmm. In fact, with Harmonia Consort the other week, um, we had a violinist who wanted to be considered for our second violin chair and she brought her two-week-old baby to the oh, rehearsal. Wow. <laughs> I know, me personally, I was still in my pyjamas watching Loose Women at that point. But I was like, good on you, you know, because that is what we need. Yeah. You need to feel that it's okay, first of all, to bring a baby. Of course it's okay. Mm-hmm. But also keeping your fingers in and thinking, okay, yes, childcare is an issue. I um, know pair route's been good for me since the children have been older. But everything else, if you don't have a husband or a supportive partner, it, it becomes a difficult thing. Mm-hmm. So it's about making women feel that, okay, You being honest, at the moment, you're not going to earn a lot of money if you keep the career going. But it's important for you as a mother mm. that you have your identity.
0: Some sort of worth and, yeah, exactly. Yeah, something else as well, I find. Totally. It's not only about childcare. Oh, and children.
1: yeah, And especially yeah. even the journey going yeah. into work mm. was so crucial for me when the children were babies. Mm. Just to feel that kind of thing of like, I'm, I'm going here without a buggy and a cello on my back <laughs> and, you it's know. It's almost
0: easier than It work, is, <laughs> absolutely. And
1: feeling okay about the yeah. feeling that, yeah. you know.
0: Oh. And is there anything in terms of, Advice you'd give someone just coming out of college, be it one of the well-known academy, etc., uh, a cellist. Or well, I suppose it goes back
1: to my my original introduction. Just say yes. What? Say yes to everything because you never, never know. Mm. There was a kid who came to I did a mentoring thing at Cheetham's. This is a great example, and he he was at my talk. I didn't meet him personally, but a year later he was starting the Royal Academy. And he wanted to come and follow up my discussion. And I'm saying all of this because I didn't do this. Mm. I was super precious and picky about the stuff I was taking on, and it didn't work in my favor later. Well, I
0: think it gets fostered also in the, yes, exactly. That you meant to be picky and not say yes to everything. Yeah. About integrity and da 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 and direction.
1: Absolutely. And I, And I think about the things I could have done differently. And that was the advice I gave. Mm. Anyway, this he he met me in Highgate and we had a a long lunch. And he sort of said, well, in my situation, I have to send money back home. So I need to, when I study at the Royal Academy of Music, my family are incredibly poor in Romania. And I want to look at ways I can make money through music. So I said the same. I said, look, absolutely just say yes, Mm. because you never know. And then a year later, I got this email saying, I'd like to invite you to the production of Sweeney Todd oh, wow. at the um, the now Picture House Central. Mm. And because of you, I'm doing this and now have a career in the West End. Oh, wow. And I was so touched. I mean, first of all, that anyone would say thank you. But the famous story was, is that this amateur production, well, amateur, professional amateur production, it was kind of very, uh, it was it was professional, but it was very, very low budget. That's the best way to put it. And it was done in a tooting shop in a pie shop and basically this guy had seen an advert for it and they wanted a violinist and they actually gave the age range I think of 25 and he lied and he said he, and he was 19 and he sort of said you know because of your advice Gabby I, I applied and I got it and we were doing this show in Tooting and Johnny Depp turned up <laughs> and then Johnny Depp called sometime and said this is the best production of Sweeney Todd you'll ever see and Sondheim, when he was in London, he went to go and see it. Sondheim was totally I mean, bless them. I mean, imagine that cast. Oh
0: my knowing god. Knowing that yeah. Sondheim yeah.
1: was there. And Sondheim made the call to Cameron Mackintosh and said, You this is exactly how I envisioned this piece. Mm. And it was very immersive. You got a free pie when he went. <laughs> and he were literally, and so it was Cameron Mackintosh built brick for brick, the same pie shop in Tooting before the cinema was it was in construction. Mm. And it became this total sellout, golden hot ticket. And my, my young boy was the violinist. And bless him, because he was still only about 20 at the time, he took me out for dinner uh, to the gourmet burger kitchen <laughs> to say thank you for a milkshake because, you know, that's what he wanted to eat. And again, I, that's the advice. Because of situations like that, mm-hmm. you just never know and so always be open and, and it makes you much more versatile musician mm. and that's why I, so I love working as a soloist as a you know playing concertos, just like everyone else but also I love just being blending in a section and the camaraderie of being in an orchestra because it's God soloist life is lonely mm. and that's not for me either
0: mm. well that's good advice I like that <laughs> and then I have to ask you as a cellist and to ring us out what's your favourite piece at the moment or is there one especially for cello that you want the you want the podcast to end on.
1: <laughs> okay. Oh gosh. Challenging. Um, very very challenging. <laughs> um, hmm. Well, I would say at the moment we um, think. There's so many cellists doing interesting things. That's the problem. And I,
0: It doesn't have to be a challenge. Che- do you mind if do I, I
1: don't a choose a cello piece? No, 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 no.
0: You can pick whatever you want. Okay. I just thought that you might find that easy. I, I know. That's fine. <laughs> I,
1: I suppose because at the moment I, I get so much influence from other kinds of music. Yeah, yeah, And, And that's kind of what I look into in my own improvisation. I would say at the moment...
0: Don't give me an Ariana Grande piece. No,
1: I'm not going to give you Ariana Grande. I just did a gig at Ronnie Scott's with Ian Shaw.
0: Yeah.
1: And I would say there's this wonderful piece on his new album called Shine, Sisters Shine, which is called something like The Empire State of New York. Okay. And he's done this wonderful album, which is, again, a lovely female link, all female singer-songwriters. Oh,
0: really? Wow. And that's
1: what it... And. That's what it celebrates. Okay. So I'd check out that track. I'll look it up put it in.
0: (laughs) Thank you. Oh, you're so
1: welcome, Kat. It's always a joy to talk to you. (laughs) New
2: York. She grew up in a town that is famous as a place in movie scene Noise is always loud, there are silence all around the streets of me If she can make it there, she can make it anywhere, that's what they say See her face in lights or a name, on marquees found down on Broadway It ain't all it seems She got a pocket full of dreams Baby, she's on New York Concrete jungle Where dreams are made. Avenue. There ain't never few Ladies work so hard Such a melting pot On the corner selling rock Preachers pray to God Hail a gypsy cat Take me down from Harlem To the Brooklyn Bridge Some will sleep tonight With a hunger far more than an empty bridge By any means she's got a pocket full of dreams Baby, she's on New York Concrete jungle Where dreams are made Oh, there's nothing you can't do Now you're in New York These streets will make you feel brand new Big lights will inspire you Hear it from A town that is famous as a place in movie scenes. The noise is always louder, sirens all around the streets are mean. She can't make it there, she can make it anywhere, that's what they say. See her face in lights or her name on Marquis found out on Broadway. It ain't on it seems she got a pocket full of dreams, baby, she's on New York.